Well, like Robbie, I want to give thanks to you all for your attendance and uh, paying attention to pretty dense material that we've covered. I'd like to also extend thanks to uh, this church for its hospitality and for its uh, <clears throat> offer to help us at Chafer Seminary with uh, our secretary's office and our library. Uh, so you, you are a very blessed group of people and we're very thankful for you. <clears throat> what I want to do now is I want to come to the Millennial Kingdom and if you'll uh, just pause for a moment as we did with Robbie so we can examine our hearts and think about how we are to relate to our Lord and Savior in a society that is basically becoming more and more hostile to our faith. And it's going to demand that we be able to speak the truth, but speak it graciously and effectively. So let's just pause for a few moments, and then we'll, we'll get into the text. Father, we're so thankful that after 2,000 years, we still can approach you through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can confess our sins. No matter how old we are in Christ, we still have sanctification because we're not finished products yet. And we can come to you with our doubts. We can come to you with our struggles, with our fears, with our whatever the problems are in our lives, knowing that you are gracious, knowing that you've already fully justified us and that you indwell us and that we can become those great people that uh, Robbie pointed out in, the, in his presentation, that one day in your presence, watching everything centered on you with the great four living creatures, the 24 elders, and an amazing situation for all eternity. We thank you now in our Savior's name. Amen. Just a word to define uh, vocabulary, three words. Um, regarding the millennium, uh, milla is the Latin word for thousand, annum, year, thousand years. So that's the title, that's where millennium came from. And there are three views on the millennium. There's an amillennial view that prevailed uh, from Augustine forward. Uh, Dr. Woods went through some of that reasoning, symbolically interpreting certain passages and prophecies uh, in the Old Testament. That's amillennialism, meaning ah, like ah, theist, atheist, meaning no theist. Well, amillennial means there's no literal millennium. The other view is the postmillennialism. That means Jesus comes after the millennium. Somehow the church is going to conquer the world. You notice how well we're doing. Um, <laughs> And we're going to bring in the millennium and then Jesus is going to come. That's post-millennialism. We are pre-millennial for reasons which I'll develop as we go on. In pre-millennialism, pre means Jesus comes prior to the millennium because he establishes the millennium. So we are going to be emphasizing that. Now, after the millennium, there's the eternal state. Now, there's a conceptual issue here that we have to, uh, in our mind's eye and imagination, we have to think about this. The in the millennium, they're going to exist on earth 
people in resurrection bodies as well as mortal bodies. So you have a strange situation never before seen in human history except for the 40 days when Jesus, after he rose from the dead, interacted with mortals. And this is, it's not unprecedented because we saw that happen when Jesus would eat, he, he would kind of appear in a room, but yet on the other hand, he would drink, he would eat, he would cook meals in his resurrection body for his disciples did, did not have resurrection bodies. So there you had the coexistence of mortal beings and immortal beings. After the millennium, there'll be the eternal state and there won't be any more mortal beings. They'll be all immortal. And the significance of this is, is that once resurrection happens, it's the resurrection of judgment and the resurrection of salvation, statuses are fixed, the ethical boundaries are fixed from that point. So the millennium has to be thought of as this time in history when God is doing something. Each age, there's a lesson being taught. Because we as Christians come to this book and we have to think when we come to the Bible, we're actually coming not to a book, but we're coming to a library of books. A library that was written over thousands of years by men from different walks of life. Women too were involved in this. And it's a coherent conversation that God has done in history. I call it God's show and tell. He's done actions, that is, he's showed things, but he's also explained what he's doing. So it's show and tell, and it's divinely organized. God is a teacher, and he's a great pedagogical schema of history. So history is progressing. Well, what I'd like to do in this now is I'd like to go to the topics. I'm going to divide it up into four. So there's going to be four issues I want to address uh, as we go on. And um, we might as well start with turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. This is the classic passage that tells, it doesn't, it's not new in the sense it doesn't, uh, the other passages in the Old Testament don't talk about the millennial kingdom. It's just that in Revelation chapter 20, we have the thousand years mentioned. So if you look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key in the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So that's an interaction now with the angelic realm. He cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years should be fulfilled and after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they sat upon him, judgment was given to them and so forth. And what this passage is dealing with here is that Satan is not allowed to deceive. And this is one of the things that makes the millennium the millennium. So let's look at the first thing. I want to cover the first topic, which is the connection between eschatology and real history. And I, I, when we teach the Bible, and I've learned this from working with college students over the years, one of the things I noticed years ago was Christian young people would come to the college campus knowing Bible stories because they were taught. 
What they didn't have strategically in their minds is to connect these stories into a coherent conversation. And that's why when they got in a classroom and a powerful faculty member would start to ridicule or undermine their faith, they kind of fell apart. And that burdened me. So I try to develop, when I teach a section of scripture, I always try to relate it to God's creation, God's real history. Theologians have two terms. They have special revelation and general revelation. Special revelation is the Bible, but all of creation is his handiwork. That's general revelation. So biology, mathematics, engineering, science, social studies, that's all studying general revelation. The failure on our part, I think, as Bible-believing Christians, is we sometimes spoke, we emphasize special revelation, which we should. That's the authoritative source. But we don't then extend it to general revelation. So let me do this briefly on this first connection, the connection now between eschatology and real history. Let's talk first about eschatology and the personal life. Ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have bad consequences. Good ideas have good consequences. If we hold ideas in our mind, the consequences are going to work out in the way we behave. Bad ideas lead to bad behavior. This is why truth is important. And if you have a bad idea of history, it creates a bad personal consequence. Here's a quote from one of the greatest mathematicians and logicians uh, of the 20th century, Bertrand Russell. I want to read this through because this was written in 1903. And in 1903, Bertrand Russell looked forward in time out of a materialist, atheist worldview. He had deeply imbibed the ideas at the end of the 1800s, the 19th century. And everybody was saying, science is going to save the world, we're on the verge of the 20th century, and everything's going to be great. Bertrand Russell saw more deeply. And I want you to follow this, because I want you to ask yourself, was Bertrand Russell really wrong if you start your reasoning process where he started them? He says this, he says that man was the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. See, that's chance evolution. No purpose in history, okay? No purpose in history. A man's origin, his growth, his hope, his fears are but the outcome of accidental convocations of atoms. No fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual beyond the grave. That the whole temple of man's achievement, that's the whole human race now, must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruin. All these things are so nearly certain that no philosophy that rejects them can possibly stand. And now here's his conclusion. Ideas have consequences. If that is true, and people in the classroom oftentimes preach this chaos, but they never are willing to take the consequence. But they have to. 
If you start here, at least Bertrand Russell had the, uh, the intellectual integrity to draw the proper conclusion to these ideas. And he says, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. And so we have that, that's the end of, of the enlightenment period. That's what you're gonna do if you're gonna start with those ideas. Those are the consequences. You see, eschatology deals with this. Eschatology is dealing with the end consequences of ideas. So I don't want people to walk away from the conference thinking, well, this is just a specialized Bible study. No, everyone has an eschatology. The question is whether it's a good one or a bad one. So we come then after the Enlightenment and people began to sense there's something wrong here with the Enlightenment. And so we have next, we have the Romantic period. This started actually in the 1800s. Um, Henry David Thoreau at Walden Pond um, started this environmental thing where it was not just reason alone. And the Reformation said it's by faith alone, in scripture alone, through Christ alone. The Enlightenment could be summarized reason alone, without any revelation. And that's where Bertrand Russell is ended. But then people couldn't take this, so they went to my feelings. And the Romantic period was how I feel about things. Walden Pond, I feel. You know, he was an unemployed hippie out there at Walden Pond. And what he did was, he, it's how you feel when you see the green trees. Well, of course, we as Christians would feel sense. We're in God's general revelation. But he meant by something different. I get my identity from my feelings. So we have this kind of thing. Here's Al Gore writing uh, almost a decade ago. And I've been very involved in the environmental movement, so I understand the, the throes of this. The fate of mankind, I want you to look at his language because I want to get you away from thinking that what you've dealt here today and yet last night is just Bible stuff. It is stuff related to the reality of your life, everyone's life. Look, what the, look at the religious language here. The fate of mankind, as well as of religion, depends on the emergence of a new faith in the future. A new faith in the future, armed with such a faith, we might find it possible to re-sanctify the earth. This is leading to a, a pagan-based utopianism. The environmental movement is in their backgrounds, they're thinking as we would think of a millennium. You see, because they're made in God's image, and everyone made in God's image has a faint memory built into our hearts of what Eden was like. And we want to get back to that kind of happiness of Eden. So we have this, and now we have a presidential candidate saying, I can't wait to have Al Gore advising me when I am president of the United States. This is a religious eschatology, people. This is not just politics. This goes deeper than politics. This is a seeking for an end to history that we can control. And what do we have as we look out on society as we've left the biblical basis? We have in the United States, the suicides are three times the homicides. 43,000 people uh, destroy their lives every year. Only 16,000 are murdered. And so it's a rising, it's a second leading cause of death with young people and so on. 
So we're dealing with eschatology, very serious personal issues. But it goes even further. Dr. Woods and, uh, and um, Dr. Dean mentioned church history and eschatology. Here is a diagram I've used. Um, let's see if I can get this next slide. Here, no, let me back up. Um, should be another slide in there. Okay, this one, uh, I'll get to that one in a minute. Here, I wanna show you something. These are college students on the streets of New York City worshiping an idol of nature. Now this is what an $80,000 four-year college education can do for you. I show you this, folks, because it's not just you and me in a Bible study that are talking about future events. These people are talking about future events. Look at them worshiping. This is not just political. This is a profoundly spiritual movement, a paganism that's going back. We have church history. Eschatology is developed in church history, and we have a situation here, we won't go through the, all the sequence, but there's been a sequence in church history over the thousands of years. You had the Trinity defined over against the ideologic of Aristotle. You come down to the Reformation, justification, sola fide, that destroys human merit. These are ideas that God has had to challenge and erode and destroy as the church has grown in its understanding of scripture. And now we come to the last 200 years, eschatology and ecclesiology, that course that we announced that Chafer Seminary is having. And that's because in the last two or 300 years, what are the big ideas that, that enthrall the hearts of unbelief? It's the idea of nation states, the idea of a nation state that is powerful and supreme. And that automatically deals with the church. What's the church's relation to the government? Should we be, as Roman Catholics, rule the governments? Should we be view as the Protestants of Europe with state-supported churches? Or should we go with the Anabaptist tradition that your membership is due to Jesus Christ and your faith alone, not because of you're a citizen of a state? So that's the argument, and that's why eschatology has to be discussed. You, we can't avoid this. Let's go now to the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world wants to have a millennium, but they don't want the scriptures. So here we have an interesting situation. In Europe, you had a man by the name of Hegel, and after the Protestant Reformation, what do you suppose people were doing after Gutenberg printed the Bible? What do you suppose was happening after the Reformation to the ordinary Dick, Tom, and Harry, and Joe, and Susie? They were reading the Bible. That was new. Didn't have Bibles before that. And so you have people reading the Bible, and they get the idea that there's progress. So immediately, unbelief takes the biblical idea and perverts it. So we have Hegel saying, there's going to be four kingdoms, the Orient, the Greek, the Roman, and finally the Germanic kingdom. Then you have Marx and Lenin looking forward. What was the communist faith all about? Wasn't the communist faith an eschatology? Of course it was. The dictatorship of the proletariat, the destruction of all private property. And finally, Mark Musser in his excellent book, Nazi Oaks, said this, Hitler, 
believed that primitive Christianity was the first Jewish communistic cell. The Nazis, therefore, propounded their own millennium, their own millennium. The thousand-year Reich was propagated as a counterculture millennialism directly opposed to the very millennialism of the, um, uh, directly opposed to the very originators of the millennial apocalyptic worldview, Jews and Christians. Where do you think the anti-Semitism came out for the Nazis? Because they were against this Jewish book and the ideas that come out of it. But they couldn't get rid of the, the idea of a future blessing in history, so they perverted it. So now that shows you that when we deal, folks, with eschatology, we're dealing with something very personal, we're dealing with something uh, continuous in the continuum of church history, we're dealing with something that's out there in the political and cultural world. Finally, we have one more slide I want to show on this point, and that is that in the United States, the idea of progressivism in politics also came out of the Bible, perverted. Here's a quote from one of the men who wrote during the 20s, when it was all these things were being discussed in our nation, both the Republican and Democratic parties were infiltrated by progressives. And here's what Rauschenbusch, who was a Baptist theologian, who was one of the architects of the social gospel. He said this, we need a restoration of the millennial hope with which the Catholic Church dropped out. Remember, they went from pre-mill to amill. It was crude in its form, but wholly right in its substance. We hope for such an order for humanity as we hope for heaven for ourselves. That's why today the UN building has Isaiah chapter 2. See, eschatology doesn't go away. It's just changed and moved. But people need a hope collectively. And they keep getting this because they're all made in God's image. So there's a memory that this is the right thing. Now today, the social gospel has advanced into the area of environmentalism. And here is what a sociologist who's looking out from the University of Buffalo, Ernest Sandberg, here's what he says as he observes politically this is happening in Europe, it is happening in North America, it is happening in South America, it is happening in China and Asia. It's a global movement. We are in the midst of the worldwide rise of a non-religious, kiliastic, see there's millennium, idea, of a kiliastic movement announcing global human renewal and predicting planetary catastrophe as its woeful alternative. This belief is that it is possible now, amidst present corruption and degradation, to build a glorious new Rome. See what we're talking about, millennium? This is unavoidable discussion. So summary of this first point, and then we'll move on quickly to the others. Eschatology is simply looking at the consequences of an idea. And in our terms, our eschatology is the consequences of God's idea for history. And it's going to play out. Everyone has an eschatology. The problem is that in our view, as Bible-believing Christians, we believe the millennial kingdom cannot be brought about unless it is brought about by God himself supernaturally. See this quote? The belief is possible now. Mortal man can bring in the millennium by his own bootstraps. 
That's not the case. Here is an observer of our view, George Marston, writing in Fundamentals in American Culture. The dispensational view of history is anti-humanist and anti-developmental. Change takes place mostly through dramatic divine intervention. Modern historiography assumes that human and natural forces shape the course of history. These totally opposing views of history lay at the heart of the conflict and misunderstanding between theological liberals and their fundamentalist opponents. So, history started in a garden. It was started supernaturally, and it's going to have to conclude supernaturally. The Bible is a unit. So let's go now. We've talked about the importance of eschatology, the importance of the millennium to real life living. Now we want to go to now why do we interpret the millennium literally? Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to just quickly show some of the, when the history started. In Genesis 1.26, man was made, God says, in, in his image. We are the only creature made in God's image. And we are not animals. We are humans. No animal has God's image. So right away we're in conflict with the world. Genesis chapter 2, we come to verse 8. What did God do to the environment as a setting for man? What did God do the day that he created man? He planted a garden. If you want to see true environmentalism... All you have to do is read Genesis 2. When God plants a garden, is he affecting the environment? Sure is. Everybody that planted a garden knows that. Real environmentalism isn't preserve nature, leave it alone. It's rather manage nature and bring it into productivity carefully. Now, as a result of the fall, because we're dealing with the environment, we're dealing with the millennial conditions, we got to go to Genesis 3. Now, if you turn to Genesis 3, verse 14, there's three areas that were affected, and these three areas have to be dealt with, and only a supernatural millennium deal with this. Notice the curses. Genesis 3, 14. And the Lord said to the serpent... Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon your belly you will go, and to dust you will go all the days of your life. And we know this is a Satan figure because of what's going to happen with Eve. So we have an angelic problem. We're not dealing with just natural, visible, physical forces. We're dealing with invisible, spiritual forces. No human, mortal, political program is dealing with the spiritual forces. And yet that's what God says, this is what happened. We've got an alien, antagonistic spiritual force going on here. Then he says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow, your conception and sorrow shall bring forth children. And, and Adam, uh, you will eat of it with uh, sweat. That's anatomical changes in the human body. So now we've got an angelic dimension. We've got human anatomy that's involved. And then finally he says to Adam, the ground, I'm cursing the ground. So there's the physical environment. So we have three things that have to be dealt with. We have the physical environment, we have human society, and we have the invisible spirit world. Let's summarize these for the millennium. We're dealing with why we interpret the millennial passages of scripture literally. The first reason is because of biblical cosmology. We've got three things that have to be dealt with. 
That's why the prophecies, like, and I'll just read these quickly in the interest of time, here are Bible verses that deal with the physical environment. Isaiah 11, 6 to 9. The wolf dwells with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the lion shall eat straw like an ox, nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. Isaiah 33, 24, the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. Anatomical changes there. Isaiah 41, 18, I will make the wilderness a pool of water. Most of that is dealing with the physical environment supernaturally changed. Why does it have to be supernaturally changed and not a government program? Because it was screwed up in a supernatural way. Human society has to be changed. Isaiah 2.4, they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Isaiah 65.19, joy my people, the child should die 100 years old. The human anatomy is changed. Isaiah 2.2, all nations will flow to God's temple. There's a whole different sociological emphasis on international relations. And finally, the third thing that is dealt with in the millennial, we've dealt with the physical environment, we've dealt with human society, and now we deal with the invisible world because back in Revelation 20, what has to happen to Satan? He has to be removed from the scene. So you see, that's why, because of biblical cosmology, we interpret millennial passages literally. Finally, there's a second reason why we interpret the millennial passages, and that's because of the nature of contracts. Here's a feature I keep uh, trying to teach folks when I go through scripture is there's something uh, true in the Bible that's not true of any other religion or any other nation. Albright, father of American biblical archaeology, said this, only the Hebrews, so far as we know, made contracts with their gods. We would reverse it, of course, say only God makes contracts. But the word covenant, which we use a lot in our vocabulary, we have to remember, wait a minute, the Hebrew word barith is a word for contract. That was what Abraham made when he needed water supplies. So we have contracts that are made. Now, what are the implications of that? The implications are that a, if you make a contract, how do you interpret the contract? Do you interpret it allegorically or literally? Wouldn't it be delightful to interpret the banking mortgage agreement that you have allegorically? Nobody in their right minds interprets contracts anything way but literally. So, second reason why we interpret these passages is because they're part of contract. These are contractual agreements that God has made. And contracts require literal fulfillment. We have the Abrahamic contract, we have the Davidic contract, we have the new contract. And more importantly, from our point of view, is Israel, under the Abrahamic contract, is going to be the source of blessing. Here's what a Jewish rabbi said who was looking at us evangelizing Jewish people. Look what this guy says. And he, he realized, because he was looking at literalists, that we believe Israel must be preserved because Israel is going to be the vehicle God uses to bring in the part of the millennial kingdom and the, and the world government. Isn't this interesting? The theology that motivated the movement to evangelize the Jews conceived of that people not as a rival religious community but as a remnant of an ancient people who carry a special mission and are predestined to help bring the drama of Christian salvation to its conclusion. In no other case has one religious community ever assigned predominant role to another religious community in its vision of redemption. That's the Abrahamic covenant. So, summary here. We interpret the millennial passages literally because of biblical cosmology and because of the nature of contracts. Let's go to the purpose of the millennium. 
Why do we have a millennium? Amillennialists have no uh, fulfillment in, in history. We, premillennialists, say mortal history is coming to a grand conclusion. Here's McLean, Alvin McLean, that wrote this. Why should there not be an age when all wars will be stopped, all diseases cured, all injustices of government rooted out? Why should there not be an age in which all unrealized and worthwhile dreams of humanity will become true on earth? Why? In the millennial kingdom, we're going to have the great accomplishments continue. I'm sure they'll play Handel's Messiah in the millennial kingdom. All the great artistic works that human beings have made are going to be carried over, freed of all the debris, of all the competition, of all the angelic deceptions. But there's another point. Turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. What happens at the end of the millennial kingdom? Also a lesson learned. And this is why an eternal state is needed. In chapter 20, verse 7 and 8, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, gather them together to battle. So what happens at the end of the millennial kingdom? Lesson. The millennial kingdom's purpose is to show the limits of mortal civilization. Even under the divine auspices of the Lord Jesus Christ ruling a global government who brings into existence a global society of prosperity, that society is still in their mortal bodies and they are subject to divine, uh, supernatural, invisible deception. Isn't, so the millennial kingdom ends in a disaster. What lesson do we learn from that? Valuable lesson. Mortal civilization can be redeemed, but it's always contingent on the next generation believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we live in our nation and we're learning something, aren't we? That if we don't evangelize the next generation, what happened to the progress of the previous generation? Is it going to last or is it going to go down? See, the, the, these lessons of the scripture teach us something about the nature of history. This is why there has to be finally a solution to history that is permanent. Here's one thing I wrote in a book describing this, this process, and I said that um, the, uh, let me get it here, the rebellion at the end reveals that even after a thousand years, oh, if we could just get rid of this, or if could, everything would be cool. You hear that all the time. But look at, here's God's answer. The rebellion reveals that even after a thousand years of a socially just environment without what is claimed today to be the causes of social injustice, wars, lack of human resources, poverty, lack of education, plagues, corrupt leadership, ethical progress in mortal society is fragile and it's reversible, even if Jesus is ahead of it. That's why there has to be an end that resolves the fundamental issue. And I want to, um, I'm going to run over three or four minutes here, but let me show you this. This is a diagram I developed years ago to try to show folks when they, ha, 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 you've got an evil problem. No, you've got the evil problem, Mr. Unbeliever. Look at this diagram. If you look at the top, 
The creator has never compromised. From, from eternity to eternity, he's been good. He created a creation. Was the creation good or evil when he created it? It was good. It was very good. There was an interim, wasn't there, between the time God created it and the fall. The fall came in not as a result of creation, but the creature. And so we have a falling away, and now you have good and evil coexisting in history, battling between it. That battle has got to end someday. And it doesn't even end at the millennium, because at the end of the millennium, you've got this problem. So that's why there must be an eternal state when good and evil are separated eternally. There will never be a change again. That has got to come to pass. And that's why there's good news in heaven and hell. Why is hell good? Good news in this sense. Because finally, evil is quarantined eternally. Never to break out again. That is a necessary part of the Christian message. Good and evil must be permanently solved. And it can only be solved when evil is eternally suppressed. What are the implications? I want to just quickly go to this, the fourth point. What are the implications for the millennium? We've talked about eschatology having to be connected with real life. We've talked about why we interpret the millennium literally. We've talked about why this has to happen in, in, in history. Now we come to the implications of the millennium for Christian living today. We don't live in the millennial kingdom, so what do we do now? What are the implications for you and me? We're living in the United States, most of us. So how do we act? Regarding the environment, instead of worshiping like the, you saw those kids in New York City with this hope with Al Gore that we're going to somehow re-sanctify the earth. Notice his terms, that re-sanctify the earth. That's what the millennium is going to do. He wants to do it politically. But you see, we don't live in the millennium right now. And... We're not in the tribulation either. See, that's another reason why we're pre-trib. That means we have an a area where we can be good stewards or bad stewards, but I've wait, made the line up and down. Why did I make that line up and down, both on the environment side and the political side? Because mortal civilization is fragile. What does it depend on? It depends on people who trust in the Lord. And we're going to get to how important that is. Here are some conclusions, concluding applications of this truth. Because of the fragility of fallen man in mortal conditions, Christians who think carefully will always be suspicious of allowing concentration of power in a small group of people. It's not that those people necessarily intend to be bad. It's that we know what we would do. We're realists. We know we have the sin nature and the flesh. How easy it is to be tempted. So why are we concentrating power in a small group of people? Spread it out so at least some people are right. So that's, there's a limitation of this. The second thing to think here is God never instituted civil government to be redeeming. It is his program through Israel and through the church it's the center of redemption. This church building is a center of redemption, not the state house. But people get confused. Now, 
what do we do as citizens in a society unlike Paul, we have more capability, more flexibility because we've been granted certain rights that in Roman Empire they didn't have. Well, here's a good Bible verse. Jeremiah 29 verse 7. It was given to Jews having to go into exile who no longer could live inside Israel, the promised land, who never had the Shekinah glory in the temple. They, they were out in Persia. They were out in all of Greece. They were out in Rome. What did God tell Jews to do when they went into exile? Jeremiah 29.7 says this, Seek the shalom of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And in shalom, in its shalom, you will have shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace and prosperity. In its shalom, you will have shalom. What does that tell us? That tells us that we follow the example of Joseph, Daniel, Esther, Nehemiah. When they forwarded policies to the limits they could, remember Esther? Remember Daniel? What was their argument? Their argument wasn't that this is going to save you. Their argument was godliness works better. Godliness is cheaper. There was a study done. You know how much divorce and unwed childbirth costs the United States economy per year? This was five or six years ago. Georgia State University did some research. They found that we are wasting $120 billion a year from the damage caused by divorce and unwed childbirth. Now you imagine all the other stuff that we do as fallen human beings. Do you see how economically disastrous this is? You could almost balance the budget if everybody was a believer and we followed the Lord. Well, because we're not dealing with all this other stuff, wasting stuff here. Having this program for there to redeem this mess. Now we've got another mess we've got to pour millions of dollars into. Godliness is cheaper. It's a great slogan. Try it in conversation sometime. <laughs> There's another passage of scripture, Acts 16, 35 and 39. Very useful, Acts 16, 35 and 39. That's that passage, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Remember the jailer? Paul knew when he went into Philippi that it was a Roman retirement community and the law said in Philippi that you are going to control local government under Roman law not under local law. Well, the magistrates shoved Paul and beat him up, put him in jail. So in the morning, they realized, wait a minute, um, isn't Paul a Roman citizen? Oh, hey, jailer, get him out of town, would you? So they come to the jailer in the morning saying, uh, they said they can release you. In Acts 16, you have the first sit-in demonstration by a Christian. This is the author of Romans 13, people. But look what Paul does. He says, I'm not leaving this jail. I'm going to sit here until you people come down and let me out. You screwed up. Now you're going to, I'm going to embarrass you. I'm going to have you come down in the light of all the city and you release me. See? Paul was not adverse to exercising the full power of his citizenship. And we need to do the same thing. So we've looked now at all this. What do we do? Bottom line the end, where we start is where you start right here in this local church. We don't believe in top-down redemption. 
the millennium is an argument against top-down redemption when Jesus rules a thousand years and it winds up in a mess. We believe as Christians it's bottom-up from inside out, not from outside in. And therefore, the engine of our culture is our marriages and our families and our local churches. Culture is produced godly way only through marriages that are functioning and successful and families that are successful. Yes, there can be witnesses in business and in law and wherever you are. That's true. You can introduce wisdom principles. But we need to grow up in homes where for a decade, mom and dad have taught us authority, they've taught us respect, and they've, they've corrected us. It's tootling. That's God's way. So we believe in evangelism as the troll source. And if people aren't saved, they can't act in a godly way. So you see how important the gospel is when you preach the gospel here? That's the beginning of redemption. It's from the bottom up from the individual, from the inside out, and from the bottom up. So, summary. Here's what we've done. Connection between eschatology and real history. We're not dealing with some obscure topic in a Bible class somewhere. We're dealing with real life. On the book table, I have a paper. Uh, if you don't have $2 to donate for the printing, that's fine, just take a copy. But this is a paper I did to show you what is happening in the environmental movement where bad ideas are having bad and costly consequences. The idea that we are going to go into a carbon asceticism has already cost in the UK over 10,000 deaths from people freezing to death because they can't pay for the increased fuel costs because they shut down their coal-fired plants. Oh, we're going to have alternative therapy. Yeah, you're all right. 10,000 people just died. So who's concerned about life? Hmm? You're always talking about pro-life? We're talking about pro-life. So in conclusion, folks, millennial kingdom follows the tribulation, follows the rapture. Those are powerful truths, and I know it's probably been overwhelming for you in this rapid-fire presentation, but I hope as your pastor goes through some of these passages of Scripture, these thoughts will gel finally, and you will realize that these are necessary parts of the whole counsel of God. Father, we thank you for our time. We thank you for this conference. We thank you that you have given us so much riches, so many riches of grace, so many riches in the Word of God. Would you please help us as we as American citizens, Christian citizens now, to think and root our thinking in your Word and have us giving a gracious answer, a truthful answer, but also done in a winsome way. For we ask this in our Savior's name. Amen.